Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at stmose, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. Morning, St. Moe's. It's good to be with you. If you haven't already read the teaching text for this morning, please go ahead and do that. You can pause me while you read it. The teaching text is Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11, and I'll be teaching from the NLT version, so that's perhaps the best version to read it in. Once you've read it or had somebody with you read it, uh, you can just press play again. I want to start this morning by saying that I'm grateful for you. These are challenging days, and churches around the nation and around the world uh, are rightly talking about hard things. But you probably don't have too many church friends who have had to endure messages on communal repentance from sin, on pornography, on political idolatry, and on racism, all in the last month. I'm not apologizing for that quite. I'm acknowledging it, and I'm thanking you. I'm thanking you for the grace and the humility, for the fortitude, the forbearance that makes this church family a place where we can talk, however fumblingly, about the sin that is in all of our lives and about the grace of God that beckons us away from it. This morning, I'm going to add one last stone to the stack. Today, we're talking about turning from greed to generosity. Don't let the lack of any trigger words in the title fool us. We are hooked on this one too. One author puts it bluntly, what is the difference between someone who willfully indulges in sexual pleasures while ignoring the Bible on purity and someone who willfully indulges in the pursuit of more and more material possessions while ignoring the Bible on caring for the poor? The difference is that one involves a social taboo in the church and the other involves a social norm in the church. That's David Platt. He lives just down the road in Northern Virginia, so email him. Before we get into our primary text this morning, just a reminder of the backdrop for this series. Too often, when we talk about sin and repentance, that's that's our bent away from God in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions, and the, the holistic turning toward God. When we, when we talk about those things, usually we do so through sort of a, an individualistic frame. But the global response to coronavirus has given us this everyday glimpse of, of a communal response to a viral threat, and it helps us to recapture a much more biblical vision of repentance, communal repentance. I'm not off the hook. You're not off the hook. But just like one person wearing a mask and social distancing in a crowd doesn't do much for the health of the crowd, so too individualistic repentance is insufficient. God is shaping his church here and around the world to be a repentant community. 
a family of people together who are constantly turning homeward, turning toward him, a family who together resist sin and who together build a culture toward herd immunity to it. We'll never be completely rid of sin's enticements this side of heaven, but we can make the church a place where it's hard for sin to thrive, in part because our collective vision of what God offers in himself is so much more desirable. Teaching text this morning is a study in contrast. You saw that. It begins with a glimpse of the generous early days of the church. Generosity, of course, was nothing new for Christians from a Jewish background, Jews who had come to follow Jesus as the Messiah and Lord. The teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, envision God's people to be a generous people. Their fields were to have crop margins left for the poor. Indentured servants and land debts were to be canceled and forgiven on regular cycles. And the combined offerings God's people were to give into in worship and relief amounted to something like 23 and a third percent of their annual income. To this day, Jewish people use the word tzedakah, the old Hebrew word for righteousness or justice, to refer to the ethical obligation of financial giving. We might call it charity. They call it justice. The glimpse we see of the early church goes far beyond the mainstream Jewish paradigm and would have been almost unheard of in Greco-Roman circles. Tim Keller of colorfully puts it this way, pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. And then the Christians came along and they gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. The Christians don't take cues from the Greeks or even from the mainstream Jews. The followers of Jesus were taking their cues unmistakably from him. It was he who'd given them an object lesson in the temple courts as they watched those worshipers drop their handfuls of money into the trumpet-shaped coffers. I imagine them being impressed by a guy maybe whose wad of bills wouldn't fit down the opening all in one go, or, or being impressed by a woman who slipped a gold bangle off her wrist and dropped it in the coffer discreetly. But the person who Jesus called to their attention was, you'll remember, the impoverished widow. She'd given more, he said, than all of the rest of them because she gave sacrificially. So more than Jesus' teaching, his early followers had seen his life and his death. with Nothing held back, nothing kept in reserve. Jesus gave himself sacrificially, generously. There's nothing so costly as the cross. So Paul, when he's urging the Corinthian church to give generously to help out the Jerusalem church in a famine, he reminds them, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. The very thing that bound those early Christians and that binds you and me who are Christians to God is his generosity. Kelly Capick's words, it 
say it this way, God has established our belonging to him, not by taking, but by giving. So along with devotion to the apostles' teaching, with prayer, with gathering together, with shared meals, the church chronologically closest to Jesus in the flesh was defined by pronounced generosity. Verse 32 says, They felt that what they had was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Voluntary generosity and wealth redistribution enabled that early Jerusalem church, at least for a season prior to the famine, to establish this enfleshed counter-testimony. It's a, a better alternative to the deeply stratified Roman society of people who had more than enough and those who would never have enough. But lest we over-idealize those early days, the church then, like the church today, was also home to greed. So Luke, in writing Acts, chases the example of Barnabas' generosity with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That story is deeply troubling and unsettling. Unfortunately, uh, verse 11 reminds us that it was for them too in those days. Everyone, it says, was afraid, both those in the church and those outside who heard about it. Ananias and Sapphira's greed shows up both as theft and as deceit. So in verse 2 says that it was with his wife's consent that Ananias kept the rest of the money. It's translating a Greek word, nosphizomai, and that's the same word uh, that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to describe Achan's crime in the book of Joshua. And it's the same one that the New Testament uses Titus to mean to, mean to steal, to, uh, to embezzle, to purloin. It's because these gifts were voluntary, which Peter goes on to emphasize, it's because they're voluntary, it seems that maybe this couple has has made a vow or some sort of pledge of giving the whole proceeds of the sale to the apostles, and then they don't. But what the text really emphasizes is their deceitfulness. Rather than just admitting that they were withholding some of the money, they preferred to keep up this picture of lavish generosity. I'm guessing you'll already have noticed this thread in our series, the the sort of double blindness of sin. We hide it from the sight of others because something deep within us knows that it's wrong. And yet, the longer we keep up appearances, the more adept we become at deceiving even ourselves so that before long, we are blind to our own sin and deaf to its effect on the community around us. So for many of us, greed is the blindness that tells us more acquisition and more consumption is the way home. For the son running from home in Luke chapter 15 that we began this series with, nothing seemed more justified or more desirable than claiming what he thought was his and spending it on his own pleasure. That is, until he realized just how far from home he'd ended up. 
The New Testament is never explicit or prescriptive on the amounts or percentages that constitute generosity. But the stories we've touched on already, they they paint the picture for us. For most Christians in America, 10% pre-tax isn't particularly generous. These are old data, but they help to show a trend. Here's Craig Blomberg drawing on a study by Sylvia and John Ronsvale. It says, per capita giving of American church members as a percentage of their annual income, both for general congregational budgetary needs and for helping the poor more specifically, has mostly declined over the last century. In the 1920s, the figures almost topped 4% per person. During the Great Depression and World War II, they plummeted, bottoming out at nearly 1.5% in 1942. The next 18 years saw steady growth with numbers reaching just above 3% by 1960. The subsequent 15 years produced consistent decline, almost a full percentage point. There have been a few small blips on the graph since then, when percentages have grown by one or two-tenths of a percent. But with the recession at the end of the first decade of the 2000s, figures for 2009 were barely above 2%, and at their lowest since the 1940s. As with pornography, as with racism, as with political idolatry, we Christians look indictingly similar to Americans who don't claim to follow the Jesus who gave himself sacrificially. Smith and Emerson analyzed uh, American spending between 2000 and 2005, and they found that we Americans get this spend 15.5 billion annually on boats and other marine products, 27.9 billion on candy, 29.7 billion in sporting goods. I'm definitely a major part of that. I thought I'd point it out before Jill did. 29.8 billion on alcohol, 45 billion on state lotteries, 59.4 billion on watches and jewelry, 203.7 billion on entertainment. This is through 2005, so you can imagine how that has climbed. And 288.7 billion on domestic travel and tourism. That is all compared to a combined approximately $188 billion that we gave per year during that period to all charitable organizations put together. This week, like those before, I'm not trying to point the finger at you any more than I am at me. I'm just asking, can we be honest with ourselves? Is this... Is this what we signed on for when we answered Jesus' command, come follow me? Is less given annually, is, is, sorry, is, is, is less given away to other people than we spend annually on entertainment? Is that really our vision of home? Is that really our vision of the good life? Surely Jesus is beckoning us towards something far more beautiful and more satisfying. Surely if we spent a year deliberately and communally tipping the scales in favor of generosity over entertainment or generosity over candy and marine products and alcohol and watches and sporting goods, we wouldn't get to the end of the year and think that we were further from home. 
Surely if we turn from greed toward generosity, we'll discover that we are turning against gravity, but we are turning toward our destiny. One team of analysts in Mark Whitehouse's 2011 Wall Street Journal article, they determined that if all American Christians had given away just 10% of their income after taxes, another 133 billion a year would have been freed up for whatever purposes people chose to use it, above and beyond all the ministry already going on. So just to put that $133 billion in perspective, the 2009 World Summit on Food Security calculated that $24 billion a year, rightly directed, would end serious hunger problems due to lack of adequate food, and then just an additional $12 billion a year would address diseases due to chronic nutritional deficiencies. What does that all add up to? Blomberg summarizes it this way. He says, believers have the resources to alleviate enormous amounts of human suffering apart from relying on either the secular business world or the government. If the church had the will to do so, it could make an enormous difference and make it clear to the world that its ministry was in Jesus' name. Now, at this point, neither you nor I are really in a position to be rallying the global church. But we can be a generous family toward each other and toward this city. And that makes an enormous difference. I think about the way that some of you bravely did a content group this winter on financial discipleship. I'm not sure if you noticed, but it wasn't a particularly popular group. It was less popular than the group on white fragility. Perhaps part of... uh, that was because the group began with personal budgets, with authenticity and transparency about where money was being allocated. And it was that tiny, tiny group led by Courtney and Allison that bugged me about making our benevolence fund open and available for additional electronic donations. And so you'll know that when layoffs and furloughs and salary cuts began to happen at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, that other people began squirreling money into that fund. The result is that some of us in this church who have had needs have seen those needs met by the generosity of God's people. And that fund is still available. If you're having financial hardship and if you're in this church family, we want to strain toward Acts 4.34. There was no need or there were no needy people among them. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same income or even the same lifestyle. But generosity does mean that just like in our statement of faith, the statement of faith adopted by the leaders of this church, the Lausanne Covenant, just as it outlines, affluent Christians voluntarily should curb self-spending, should seek simplicity, and give generously to help others. It means that, that this church family, people who give high dollar amounts and people who cannot, they have access within this church family to the same sorts of services and privileges. It means that This church deliberately shunts resources to other congregations in the city, particularly some outside of the affluent white L, so that even in small ways, the family of God pursuing generosity becomes a steward of wealth redistribution. 
in a cultural moment of super zip codes, of rising income disparity, and of a recession, the scale of which we haven't seen since the 40s, can you imagine what a contrast the family of God would be to the surrounding culture if we live generously? Today is the last message in this particular series. It doesn't mean that we're done with repenting, nor does it mean that it's time to get started on the one thing that stuck out to you. My guess is that for most of us, one of these areas of repentance cut a little bit closer to the core than others. Maybe it was racism. Maybe it was pornography. And the temptation for me as a pragmatist who loves efficiency would be to get to work on whichever one felt to me like it was the most urgent or the most strategic and just to defer the others. So in this cultural moment, maybe many of the white people are thinking, I'm going to tackle racism now. And in 2020, assuming it's a less crazy year, then I will repent from greed. But here's why that isn't on offer for us. Sin, while it has disastrous effects on each other and ruinous effects on ourselves, it is ultimately a relational breach with God. It's a turning away from Him. And as such, it just doesn't do any good to turn toward him in one area of our lives and to remain facing away from him in others, no matter how pragmatic that might seem. To make the point, let me give you sort of a silly, hyperbolized illustration. Imagine Jill and I sat down one night after the kids were in bed, and I looked her in the eyes and said, baby, I've got something I need to tell you. Actually, a few things. I've been gambling away our family income. I've been sleeping around. I traffic narcotics into Baltimore City. I'm afraid the kids found my stash. But hold on, there's good news too. The good news is that this year, I'm going to focus on getting out of the drug racket. And once I've got that squared away, I'll tackle something else. Do you have a preference which comes next? You see, it's ridiculous. Sin requires whole self turning toward God and unreserved giving of ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. No strategic prioritizing, no tabling areas for later. This isn't to say that we're able to completely rid the sin in all areas. It's not even to say that we'll make equal progress in all the areas. Rather, it's to recognize that deliberate halfway discipleship is deliberate halfway idolatry. To be a Christian means that we sign on the line that when God makes us aware of our sinfulness, we will repent. And as you'll have anticipated, that happens continually. Some of us might just recently have become aware of the racism in our lives. Some of us might be reaching new awareness of the insidious greed in our lives. And as you continue to submit yourself to the Spirit, He'll bring new things to your attention, new things to my attention. So we become together a repentant community. And a repentant community 
is a far safer community to join than one that thinks it is done with its repenting. Some of the old baptismal vows, perhaps some, some of you said, go like this. Do you renounce your sin and turn to Christ? That question, that question, will you repent? Will you turn toward home? Will you choose Christ over sin? That's, that's the question that Jesus posed to Peter, of course, over a fish breakfast on the beach. That's the question that he poses to us each meal we take together. Will you repent? Will you turn toward home? Will you give yourself fully over to me and over to each other? With with my body on the table and my blood poured out for you in the chalice, you can see where my heart is. No deceit. Nothing kept back. Will you turn toward home? Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray for the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon this church family. Father, even while we can't meet together these days, I pray that in our own little spaces and in our interactions online and over the phone with each other, that you might turn our hearts toward you in repentance. I pray that you would make us a people given to holiness, not because we want to be holier than anyone else, but because we belong to you, because our hearts burn with the desire to be yours, to be given to you as you gave yourself to us because we are captivated with the vision of who you are and what you offer us because we long to be home with you. Because we know that this sort of holiness, far from being judgy, is in fact the greatest gift we can give to those around us. So Father, would you make us a people of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.